you have your Bible with you, we're going to look at the crucifixion accounts. I want to read them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not very long. And then I want to talk about the seven sayings of, of Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 33, Matthew writes, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, And saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. In Mark's gospel, in Matthew or chapter 15, beginning at verse 22, says, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the ninth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. I'm sorry, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In Luke chapter 23, Luke writes, beginning at verse 33, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you were under, under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. It was about... It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And we turn to John chapter 19. Beginning at verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Lord, these are sobering words. They're powerful words. And we ask now that as we consider what you said, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would marvel at you, wonder at your love, and be filled with gratitude for what you have done for us. We pray and ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Seven sayings. The the first of them is as we just consider the chronology of the crucifixion is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is found in In Luke's gospel, as they were crucifying him, Luke writes that he was saying these things. There are many wicked things that are done in the world, many evil things that are done in the world. Many people suffer at the hands of others. But no one can say that what they suffer is completely and totally undeserved because no one is completely and totally innocent. Even when we suffer things that our, our wrongful attacks, we are at risk all the time of the judgment of God as sinners. But Jesus Christ was utterly innocent, not only of the crimes that he was accused of, but of any crime, of any sin, of any wrongdoing. And his death then is the ultimate insult. It is the ultimate offense against God. It's the ultimate crime. And yet as these men crucified him, Jesus responded with forgiveness. He asked that this terrible sin of murdering the Son of God be forgiven. Uh, Many translations make it sound like a single request, Jesus said. But the, the Greek text makes it this ongoing thing. Jesus was saying, while they were doing this, Jesus was saying. So as they stretched out his arm and they drove the spike through it, he asked the Father to forgive them. And when they stretched out the other arm and spiked it down, he asked the Father to forgive them. And when they crossed one heel over the other and drove the spike down there, he asked the Father to forgive them. We would be screaming. We would be cursing. Jesus took all of that pain and he turned it into a a plea for mercy. We often make two mistakes about forgiveness we we can under misunderstand uh, we or we can underestimate how serious our sin actually is we can make our sins relatively minor when they're really as ugly and violent as the sins that drove those spikes into his flesh we can also underestimate the determination of jesus christ to save that even while he was being crucified he was determined to ask for forgiveness for those who were harming him That's a blessed thought. The second thing Jesus says in the chronology is to the the thief, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. It's a really a stunning statement that the one thief is cursing him. The other one asks for mercy. Matthew describes these two men as, as violent, bloodthirsty men who used violence to rob or perhaps to overthrow authority. He doesn't name their specific crime, but they're being crucified. There were a lot of punishments in the world at that time. There were even many ways to put somebody to death that didn't require crucifixion. And so being crucified makes them vicious, violent, bloodthirsty, dangerous men, habitual criminals. And the one simply speaks out of his own nature. Uh, Jesus, if you are really who you are, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And, And within that is this attitude, I don't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. I'm innocent like everybody else who's been accused of a crime. This is wrong. How dare you do this? The other man, and interestingly enough, we heard in the other Gospels that at one point both of them them are mocking him, but the other man, as he's hanging there dying, has a change of heart that we can only describe as something that the Spirit of God does. He rebukes his friend and says, Do you not even fear God? We are suffering justly. We deserve what we are getting for our deeds. But he has done nothing wrong and then he makes an absolutely absurd request he says jesus when you come into your kingdom remember me anybody hearing that man hanging on the cross for whatever terrible crimes dying for whatever terrible crimes he he had committed turning to this other man who'd been crucified And asking for mercy, they would have laughed out loud. But Jesus doesn't laugh. Jesus doesn't treat it as a joke. Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, that truly there is the word amen. It's a way of saying, without question, without any doubt, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He offers no hope to the mocking thief. He offers no hope to the man who who just spews out venom and mockery. But to the man who says, I deserve nothing. I deserve death in its entirety. I deserve hell. But at some point in the future, when you come in your kingdom, and I don't know how long that will be, and I know that I will suffer until that moment, would you remember me at least? And Jesus says, I'll do more than that. I'll take you with me when I go. It's incredible. It's one of the warmest stories in Scripture. It's one of the more encouraging stories in Scripture. But we can kind of mythologize the word. We can kind of treat it as something that doesn't really have any bearing on us. And so I don't mean to offend anybody with this, and I, and I hope that I don't, but a year or two ago, a young woman from Neely, Sidney Loof, was brutally murdered. The man accused of murdering her is a man named Aubrey Trail. What if you heard he had asked Jesus for mercy? What if you heard Jesus had granted it? That's harder for us. This is what the people there are facing as Jesus speaks to this man. But because Jesus can show that man mercy at that very moment, he can show me mercy. 
And the truth is, before God, our sins are no less. We go from this tremendously impactful statement to something that seems to be very personal. Jesus looks down. He sees his mother standing there with several other women around her. And he sees John. He understands that Mary, his mother now, has nowhere to go. Jesus had brothers. Uh, James, who wrote the epistle of James, was one of his brothers. Jude was one of his brothers. And I think that there are a couple of others that are named in Scripture. And then, and then he had sisters. But Jesus is quite obviously the oldest. And it could have been that, that his brothers were, were young enough that they weren't, really weren't established yet. They really weren't in a position to take care of her. They're certainly not at Golgotha. Neither the rest of his disciples, just John is. And in the midst of all of his suffering, in the midst of all of the pain, as he bears this awful weight of sin, as he suffers what we can't begin to imagine, he doesn't turn inward in... in some kind of a selfish display. Instead, he says, there's something I need to do here. I need to make sure that my mother is cared for. Because he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be buried. He knows that he'll be raised from the dead, and then he knows he'll be on earth for 40 days, and then he'll ascend. His, his time of caring for her is gone. So the the dying Savior who is dying for the sins of all of his people and suffering the eternal wrath of God against all of his people at that moment turns to this really something that just seems like such a small thing with compassion, with tenderness, and says to Mary, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his household. John knew exactly what he meant. I can just see it in my mind, John moving over to where Mary is, putting his arm around her as she sobs and struggles with what's happening. All of Jesus' thoughts could have been upon himself and and our thoughts would be on us. But he's not that way even in the worst of circumstances. The next thing that we see are these terrible words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was crucified somewhere around 9 a.m. And for about three hours, it just proceeded as everyone has expected, as awful as crucifixion was, this is what happens when somebody is crucified. But then at noon, when the sun reached its, its peak in the sky, when it would, you would expect it to be the brightest, all of a sudden the sun is obscured, the sky is darkened, and, and it becomes dark. And darkness falls upon the face of the land. Everywhere that is around them, everywhere that they could see from that point, becomes covered with darkness. This, this isn't dusk. This isn't a, a, a well-lit, moony night. This is black. This is can't see your hand in front of your face, black. And it goes on for three hours. And Jesus tells us at the end of that three hours why, and it's because God the Father had forsaken him. It's in those three hours that the wrath of God is being poured out, that, that God looks down at him 
sees our sin on him. And Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. And, and he, he takes the blow for us. And he does so without a sound. He does so without complaint. Now, there's two things that strike me about this. First is that it's a warning to sinners because this is a picture of hell. Jesus, the Son of God, holds it for three hours, and after three hours, he bursts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hell is, is ultimately, in the final analysis, being completely and utterly separated from God. Now, we look at our world and we say there are a lot of people who don't believe in God. There are a lot of people who believe in false gods. But in this world, in this life, the loving providence of God is around all the time. His rain falls on the righteous and the, and the wicked alike. His love is given and people have family and there's food and there's the sun and there's the, there's the pleasure of sleep after a long day of work. All of those things. Hell is the absence of anything of God. And so there is, I believe, a warning here. But there's also a promise and there's a relief and there's a joy for us. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, we, we know that, that Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. Remarkable as that is. You've heard it said, I, I think, probably, that because of Jesus' righteous when, righteousness, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees his son, right? You've heard that. Well, as Jesus hung on the cross, God looked down and he didn't see, didn't see his son, he saw you. And that's why Isaiah 53 says that he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, he was punished for our well-being, he was tortured for our healing. And what a remarkable thing that Jesus would bear that for us. That the Father would not hold anything back, but pull out the fullness of his wrath so that it would be utterly satisfied. We could stand free before him Jesus said at the end of this then this is almost the end he said I am thirsty such a simple thing to say he hasn't said anything for three hours he'd been hanging there on the cross for six hours you would you would imagine that in that state he would have had a lot of needs but but he's very very close to to dying at this point with the completion of these three hours of, of prophecy or the three hours of darkness, his redemptive work is almost done, but there's still scripture to fulfill. And he has the presence of mind to fulfill scripture. Jesus, knowing, John says, that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. He did it deliberately. See, he had such a huge regard for the word, for the scripture, the the voice of God in written form. After his resurrection, on Sunday morning, he catches up with two of his disciples who are heading west to the town of Emmaus because they're going back to Galilee. They're, They're leaving. Jesus is dead. The Sabbath is over. The sun is up. They can travel. They're going home. 
he catches up with them and he speaks with them. And then, and then it says in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, he taught them everything in the Old Testament regarding himself. So as Jesus is dying on the cross, he doesn't say, stop thinking, don't worry about it, don't use your imagination or your intellect, just be in the experience. He says, I want your faith to be in, in Scripture. I want your faith to be in the Word of God, not what you think you have experienced or what somebody else says they've experienced, but in what I have promised in my Word. And so he fulfills this Scripture. And it emphasizes just how important the word was to him. And finally, the last statement that Jesus makes, it's the, maybe the, the best known of these. It's simply the words, it is finished. It is finished. And I feel really bad about pointing this out. I don't know that it would be helpful to anybody because it's so simple. And I know that as soon as I say it, you're going to go, well, yeah. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm finished. I've had all I can do. My life is at an end. It's slipping away from me. I'm finished. I'm done. Somebody else is going to have to pick it up. Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus didn't hang on on the cross, enduring until death overtook him. Jesus hung on the cross, enduring in life until he was ready to die. And he wasn't ready until redemption was finished. Here's a clear sign of a false gospel. And it's one that we should be quick to recognize. And that is any suggestion that what Jesus did on the cross is insufficient. That it's not enough to save. That it gets us close, but we have to do our part. We have to say our prayers or give certain gifts or do certain things or go certain places. We've got to pay for some part of our sin. That's a false gospel. It's an insult to what Jesus did. It denies him. And that's a gospel that can't save. Vicious insults against the Son of God who cried out, It is finished. We can close the book on redemption. That's why Hebrews... Remember Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews a little bit. That's why Hebrews says he obtained he obtained eternal redemption before he ever went to heaven to intercede for us. And if he's given you redemption, your redemption is eternal. That means it, it, it covers your life from the moment you sprang into existence to the full stretch of eternity. That's what he did in those hours on the cross for you. I was wrong. One more. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's an interesting contrast. Jesus just a few minutes earlier really had cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now it's Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. At last everything was done and accomplished. And John writes, He gave up his spirit. Everything that happened this day was in his control. As he prayed in the garden, Father, I ask that this cup pass from me. 
All Jesus had to do was put a period there, and he never would have died. But he said, yet not my will be done, but yours. When the soldiers came to arrest him, and Peter stood up with his sword and attacked the servant of the high priest, and Jesus healed his ear, Jesus says, don't you know that I can call 12 legions of angels to defend me? A legion, Roman legion was somewhere in the realm of five or 6,000 soldiers. Don't you know I can call 70,000 angels? But he didn't. Jesus was dragged before Annas and then Caiaphas and then Pilate and then Herod and back to Pilate. Pilate that last time is desperate to try and release him. Jesus won't give him any help. Pilate just needs Jesus to to, just something. Just give me something, some reason to release you. And Jesus refuses. And in spite of the mockery of the chief priests and the leaders and and even the the other thief, Jesus could have come down from that cross at any time. And he didn't. He didn't. And even now, his death is not because death finally overcame him. He was not killed by blood loss, not by shock, not by asphyxiation. He yielded up his spirit. It's not that he endured until death overcame him. It's that he clung to life until he was ready to go. And he wasn't ready until eternal redemption had been fulfilled and it was finished. God is so good. God is so good. He gives us far more to contemplate in these passages than we usually take time to contemplate. And I know we've moved through things quickly tonight. And uh, you, you all know me. You know how I can go on and on. Each one of these could be a sermon. They're, they're just rich with meaning. All he had to say to us about the crucifixion was they took Jesus out and they crucified him and he died for your sins and then he rose on the third day. It's all he had to say. That would have been absolutely true and enough to believe. But he gives us this wealth of information so that we would know that the cross is the means by which we are forgiven. That the cross is the means by which the grace of God is given to us. That the cross is a picture of God's tender compassion for us in our need. That the cross is a a fearful warning to those who remain in their sins and a joyful promise to those who believe in Christ. The cross is a, a reminder of how God values his own word and fulfills it. It's a, an emblem of the perfection of the atonement. It is finished and a reminder that, that death is coming for us too. Death is coming for us too. I heard a, a, a pastor this past week say, The stone wasn't rolled away from the tomb so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that we could get in. And what he meant by that was so that we could see that Jesus had been raised. But the way I heard it was Jesus died and rose again so that I can die without fear. So that I can die and rise again. Jesus opened the tomb so that I can get in and he can take me right out. I, I so hope you rejoice in his cross. I so hope you rejoice in his love and what he did for you. Don't feel sorry for him. This was willing. He was pleased to do it. 
He was pleased to bear the father's grief as much as the father was pleased to put him to grief. And it, it wasn't a slap on the wrist. He, he endured more than we'll, we will ever endure because he endured God's eternal wrath against all of his people compressed into three hours. But he did it because of his faithfulness to the Father and his love for you. I find that to be amazing. So join me and let's sing one last song.